All right, good morning, church. It is a privilege to be with you all. My name is Clint. Uh, my wife and I live in Atlanta, Georgia, where we lead a work of disciple-making. We're trying to advance the gospel and raise up leaders in Atlanta among college students and a number of others. And your church, this church, uh, supports us, and we are so thankful. And it is my honor to be with you this morning to bring God's word. And so uh, we, we have uh, extra blessing this weekend it's our spring break for our girls. We have three little girls, so we are going to be enjoying some time at the beach here this week. My wife's birthday was yesterday. She just turned north of 29, and so uh, we are enjoying uh, a weekend here, and I get to be with you to open God's Word in the midst of it all. So let me pray for us this morning. Heavenly Father, you are the one who speaks through your Word. And Father, I pray that you would speak through me this morning. God, may you... May you be working into our hearts and our minds this morning to bring us an understanding of your truth and your gospel, Lord, that the information we dive into would not just be information, but it would lead to our transformation. Lord, that we would be like you and follow you, Jesus. Um, so we pray this in your name. Amen. Hey, you've all been doing a series on the 12 disciples, right? The 12 apostles. And uh, so thank you to Todd for inviting me to come speak on one of them, we are going to be digging into the character, the, the person, the man of Matthew this morning. We're going to dive into uh, who he is and what his legacy is and how that relates and applies to us. Um, so would you open with me to Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, and we'll start here this morning. Matthew 9, 9. Read it up here with me. As Jesus passed on from there... He saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose, Matthew rose, and followed him. Now we're going we're gonna to use this to propel us and to launch us into who is this man, what did he do, uh, and, and, and what is in it for us. And one of the big ideas that I pray we, we come away uh, was just illustrated to me recently. I was having lunch with a friend, a new friend who's just moved to Atlanta. He moved his family. He's teaching, or I'm sorry, he's coaching football at one of our schools, one of our campuses in Atlanta. And uh, he was previously coaching at the Clemson University football. Um, and so he has an incredible story. So we met, he's, he started going to my church in Atlanta and uh, as we were over lunch, enjoying some barbecue, I said, man, tell me a little bit about your story, your journey. I don't, I don't know a whole lot. I just know you were coaching football at Clemson before you moved here. And, and so we, we shared our testimonies, our stories. And what I loved was um, his story was actually very little about his football journey. Though he, he played football for Clemson and then went into the NFL for a few years and then left the NFL to, t to coach at Clemson through uh, a couple of national championship seasons. Um, you know, so he had this incredible thing, but that was such a little part of his story. Really, the part of his story I loved was his faith. We, should, we talked a lot about our faith, and we talked a lot about what has brought us to this place in our life right now. And, and I, said, I said, man, I gotta, I gotta ask you, when you were at a place like Clemson and that football program, what was it like to be around guys like Coach Dabba Sweeney and, and you know, some of these players that are playing in the NFL now? And he's like, well, you know, it was kind of cool. He downplayed it. Uh, he, he said, you know, the thing is, a lot, of, a lot of people know about them. But I had a chance to know them personally. I knew their heart. I knew their character. I knew the intentions that they had. And I knew their struggles. And he was very close with a lot of these guys that 
many of us know about, right, who have been on the national stage. And, and I, you know, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands how many are Clemson fans in here, but, uh, you know, there are some people there that are idolized in our culture, and we, we know a lot about them, you know, Coach Dabo and all this. And the thing that just struck me was, you know, Jesus interacting with Matthew gives us a very similar picture where the Christian life isn't just knowing about someone. It's not just knowing about Jesus. The Christian life is that we get to enter into knowing him personally and deeply and intimately. And I pray that is the platform that we look at the rest of this through. So as we dig into Matthew's life, would you take a look at your own life through the lens, or maybe even some, for some of us, it might be even a mere reflection in some ways of our own life and how it compels us to know Jesus more deeply. So here's what we're going to do. Uh, we're actually going to really take a look at his life through the gospel account in Luke, because Luke gives us a little bit more insight and some other details uh, that Matthew, when he wrote his own story and his own gospel, he didn't include as much. So Luke, so here, open with me to Luke chapter 5. We're going to read verses 27 through 30. Luke 5, 27 through 30. After this, after Jesus had just healed this paralyzed guy and just confronted these, religi confronted these religious leaders, he's walking along. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. Now, Levi is sitting in, outside the town of Capernaum uh, alongside the Sea of Galilee, and he's collecting taxes coming in. And Jesus says to him, he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of, of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come, I have not come to call the righteous, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So what we see here is Luke uh, is talking about this guy, Levi. Matthew is talking about Matthew. So what's going on? Well, Levi is likely his, his birth name, his Jewish name. He's a Jewish man. Uh, Levi was a prestigious, honorable name in Jewish culture. He was, he was likely named after one of the 12 patriarchs, Levi, who was the father of the priesthood. You know, the Levites came from him. And so Levi likely grew up in a home, a Jewish home, where they had high aspirations for him to become a priest or a teacher of God's word, right? Or a religious leader of some sort. That was kind of his name's sake. And Levi grows up, what we, what we know to be true from, from the gospel accounts, he likely grows up in a wealthy family. He's fairly well off because he's able to buy a tax business. So in order to buy a franchise and a tax business, you had to have some means. So he came from some wealth, likely. He also was probably well-educated because he wrote one of our Gospels, right? In order to write one of these Gospels, one of these letters, you had to have known how to read and write. But more than that, he knows the Word of God. He knows the Scriptures, the Old Testament, well. 
And through the Gospel of Matthew, he's reciting the Old Covenant Scripture. So he had to have been well-educated. He had to have been trained and learned. Uh, Levi, furthermore, he, he grew, growing up in, this, in this, this Jewish culture and custom, they would have really despised a certain type of people, tax collectors. Right? So Levi's growing up in this background, and his family would have had to pay taxes, and they would have despised these tax collectors. We're going to talk about that here in a minute. So Levi's on this trajectory, well-educated, wealthy, to become a religious leader of his own. And what does he do? He becomes a tax collector. And so Levi, here Jesus enters the scene with him. Levi's sitting at this small tax booth beside the lake in the town of Capernaum. Now, what we know to be true is that because of what he was doing, he's sitting in this tax booth, he was probably, a, there's a number of type of tax collectors, but he's probably one of the most despised, right? Because he is the one who's at the front when people are coming on this, uh, on this, tr- this path, this roadway, he's the one who's nailing them for their taxes. He's the one who's directly encountering Uh, and interacting with them. Now we see other tax collectors throughout the scripture. Jesus interacts with them a lot, right? There's a guy named Zacchaeus we know. Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector, kind of a head honcho boss. Levi was just a young uh, guy in in the trenches doing the dirty work. He's probably in his 20s. Now it's interesting to know that where he is on on the shore of the lake, there was a specific profession that he was especially taxing. Fishermen. So he's sitting beside the lake, and you know people are coming, coming along this path. The fishermen, as they've caught their fish, are coming up, and he's the one imposing the taxes on the regular people. Now he's not just imposing what the government has said, right? So he's employed by the Romans. The Roman soldiers endorse him, and the Roman officials employ him to charge the taxes, but his business is made off of the extra that he imposes on people. So the people know when they're coming, they're like, I know what my taxes are. And then here's Levi, as other tax collectors did, and they imposed more. So they oppressed the people. They cheated the people. They robbed the people. It's kind of like we're in tax season right now, right? Many of you may have submitted your taxes. We're in tax season right now. It's kind of like the IRS and the mafia joining forces. Right? So it's, it's, it's as if the IRS is saying, well, the only way we can get what's due us in our taxes is if we contract the mob to go out and set up booths and stations, and they, we know, are going to take care of this for us. All right? And so the mob's like, ooh, this is a lucrative business we can get into. So we'll buy an interest in the franchise into this. And this is what Levi did. He had to have bought into this. And, and then just charges people over and above what he should. So the Romans employ him. The Jewish people hate him because he is oppressing them. He is taking advantage of them. He is corrupt with them. And there's no enforcement, right? The Romans are like, I'm cool with it. You can, you can impose as much as you want as long as we get our due. So it's just injustice. Can you imagine if we were living in this world, if, if this was our reality that in order to pay our taxes, we didn't submit our, our forms electronically, but we had to go down to a station or a booth somewhere, and we're thinking, okay, this is what I owe, 
and you get there and you realize, ah, silly, it's like 20% more. And you know, it's just oppressive and unjust. And this was the reality of the people, so the people hated him. But the religious leaders, they rejected and reviled him even more. They wouldn't allow tax collectors like Levi to enter into the synagogues. He was considered among the worst of sinners. He was put alongside prostitutes and thieves. and He was a criminal in their eyes, and he could not enter into a synagogue, a Jewish synagogue, to worship God. He could not enter into the temple to worship God. So, so here's Levi, who has grown up in this prestigious Jewish background, right? He's on this career track, and he abandons it and throws it out. It's like a college dropout who says, I'm going to get rid of all of this, and I'm going to go my own way because I think I can make more money and be more lucrative in this. And then he's got this other group, the sinners, that the Pharisees call, who are other tax collectors, who are other thieves, and these are his friends. And they're just enabling him to be more corrupt, right? The mob doesn't have conscience within them. They're like, hey, I, you know, I think what you did to impose that uh, lean or that strict amount wasn't, wasn't fair. You know, they, they don't do that. They're like, we're going to get what's ours. And so he has these sinful friends, as the Pharisees say, who are really probably just using him because he's making a lot of money. All right, so here's a little background on Levi. Educated, wealthy, corrupt, somewhat powerful, oppressive, employed by the Romans, reviled by the people, rejected by the religious leaders, and enabled to keep oppressing people by his friends. This is not looking good. Can you imagine how isolating and lonely this world would be? For Levi, he's, he's living in a way where he's realizing there are not people, there are not many people who really care about him. There are not people around him who really have his interests in mind. And he's on this dark trajectory, but the story gets better because it's in this moment when Jesus comes along and meets him. And Jesus looks at him with his disciples who have been taxed by him over and over. And, you know, if there's anyone who has no interest in having anything to do with this guy, it's the other disciples who are fishermen, who he's directly been beaten down. So that Jesus walks by with the disciples, and he looks at him, and you can just imagine the disciples are like, Jesus, don't, please, don't do it to this guy. Don't bring this guy into our group with you. Anyone but him. And Jesus looks at him, and he says, you, follow me. And what do we see Luke records? Levi leaves everything he has to follow Jesus. Why would he do this? Why would this guy who is making a lot of money and living a comfortable lifestyle, why would he abandon that to follow Jesus? Well, we have to know a little bit about what's been going on. So over the last year before this, John the baptizer had been on the scene and he had been preaching this message of repentance and forgiveness and baptizing people. And then Jesus comes on the scene and Jesus starts blowing everyone's minds because he starts preaching this gospel message of the kingdom. There is something new, beautiful, amazing, growing and building that he's inviting people into. And he started recruiting this band of followers, right? So as you've been going through the series, you're learning about some of these guys, Peter, Andrew, James, John, Nathaniel, Philip, these guys are starting to follow him around. And Jesus starts doing these amazing, miraculous 
things. He's casting demons out of people, right? So right before Jesus interacts with him, there's an instance where this, de- this demon-possessed man comes into a synagogue. It would be like someone crazy out of their mind, demon-possessed, coming into church here today. Jesus is teaching, and he stops everything, and he commands this demon to come out, and it creates this huge scene. And you know what the people do? They're like, oh, that was cool. Go about our day. No, that's not what they do. They, they're, they're like, what in the world is going on? We've never seen anything like this. And word starts spreading about him all over and he's healing people. He's making the paralyzed walk. He's making lepers have their skin healed. He's, he's taking people who are on their deathbed, like Peter's mom or mother-in-law. His mother-in-law is deathly sick, and Jesus heals them. There's, this is happening over and over. And so Levi, living in this small town, he could not have missed this. He sees these healings. He hears this message of the kingdom. He sees demons cast out. He's witnessing and observing and experiencing this. He had to have seen the power and the presence of Jesus in a way he had never seen with anyone before. And this message that Jesus is proclaiming must have been working in his heart. Where Levi's recognizing, wow, you know, maybe, maybe what I'm giving my life to isn't good. Maybe, maybe I'm really hurting people more than I realize. And he begins to get convicted of his sin. And Levi is starting to have some heart change and mind change. His heart is no doubt turning to God. And furthermore, as a Jewish man, he abandoned this life of, of morals and ethics and this religious track long ago. And so for a rabbi to come to him now at this season and to say, hey, you can follow me. It would have been ridiculous. It would have been absurd. No one would have thought this could have happened because there was such a prestige and an honor that only the people who were the most righteous, the people who were the most uh, good in their performance, and they were the most uh, learned in their knowledge of the scriptures, only these people would have been invited to follow a rabbi, not a tax collector. So Jesus says, you follow me. What this puts us at is Levi was a man who knew a lot about Jesus. He's learning about him. And now he has an opportunity to know him personally, to walk with him, and to follow him. And friends, this is so applicable for us because for us as Christians or non-Christians who have grown up in a culture and a world where we know a lot about the Bible, we know a lot about Jesus, that's not the Christian life. The Christian life is knowing him in relationship personally. And Levi sees this invitation, and it's no wonder he leaves everything to follow Jesus. But the question is, does he really know what he's getting into? He knows what he's leaving behind. But does he know what he's getting into? Does he know what it actually means to follow Jesus? Do we know what this means to follow Jesus? Matthew, Levi... Later on, tells us what this means. He writes of it in Matthew 16. Matthew 16, 24 through 26, we see this passage where he unloads. What does it look like to follow Jesus? So if he didn't know it then, he was about to find out real quick and real soon because he writes about it. And here's what he says in Matthew 16. Then Jesus told his disciples, 
If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and, for, and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? So Levi, the tax collector, he is well aware now, later on, of what gaining the whole world looks like, because that was what he had been pursuing. And he, for him to say, this is not the pursuit of our life. What good is it if we gain the whole world and we lose our soul? Following Jesus has costs. There are costs for discipleship, following Jesus. And he unloads them. The cost is we have to come after him. Not before him, which I am often good at. I get ahead of Jesus and what he's doing. Jesus says, come after me. The cost is that we deny ourselves. We have to reject and resist our self-centered tendencies and ambitions. The cost is that we carry our cross. Now, as a Jewish person in that time, this would have made complete sense to us. It doesn't make a lot of sense. No one's carrying a cross around anymore. But literally what this means is you have to be willing to die. You have to be willing to be persecuted. You have to be willing to suffer for Jesus' name's sake. When he says carry your cross, we have to be willing to lose our life, to forfeit the things of the world. And here's the reward. We get to be led by the God of the universe who has wisdom over all things, who has authority over all things, and who has our best interests in mind. We get to gain Christ, the giver of life. We get to gain new life. We get to gain abundant life. We get to gain eternal life. These are the promises Jesus gives throughout his gospels. So when Jesus calls Levi to follow him, this is the turning point, where Levi says, there's something new I've never experienced before in this. Grace. Unmerited favor from God. Me as a reject and an outcast, reviled and hated, I can have fellowship and relationship with this man who's doing these things? That's grace. How could he resist or reject Jesus? And a little later, what we see is Jesus then gives Matthew and these others, Levi, and these others the mission. And this won't be up here, but in Mark 3, there's a great picture of what happens, where Jesus then, after he prays, and after he's been building all these followers, this group of people following him, he goes up on a mountain, and he calls to him all of these disciples. And out of them, he appoints 12. And this is what this series this church is going through is based on, and Matthew is not listed as, Ma as Levi now. He's listed as Matthew. And so Levi is given a new name, a new identity, a new trajectory for his life. And Jesus empowers him to do the things he's been doing, to preach and to heal and to cast out demons. Jesus gives him something that he could never have fathomed on his own. A new identity, a new name, a new life. And we know that only Jesus could have renamed him this. All right, is anyone in here named Matthew? Do we have any Matthews in here? 
a couple. Okay, Matthew literally in the Hebrew means gift of Yahweh, gift of God. We know his sinful friends are not going to name him that. The Pharisees and religious leaders most likely are not going to name him that. His friends are not going to name him. He was named Levi. That was prestigious in Judaism. But Jesus says, I'm going to give you a new name, Matthew, the gift of God. Can we imagine what this would have been like for this man? And instead of cheating people, he starts generously leading people. Matthew, in his first thing that he does after Jesus calls him, go back to this Luke passage, is the first thing he does is he follows Jesus by giving up everything he has, and then what? He throws a party. He throws a party. It's like if any of you have been engaged recently in here, and, you, and you've thrown an engagement party, and, you, and you, you want all of your friends to meet your new fiancé, your soon-to-be spouse, and you think, I want to invite everyone I know to come celebrate with us, because I don't want them just to know about my fiancé. I want them to know and meet my fiancé and build a relationship. And this is what Levi does. He, he goes out from the tax booth, and he goes to all of his friends throughout the town, and he starts, he said, tax collector friend, prostitute friend, thief friend, we're having a party. You've got to come meet this Jesus. I don't want you just to keep hearing about him. I want you to meet him. I'm throwing a party for him. And so all of these people, it says in Luke 5, it says, and a large company of tax collectors and other sinners were hanging out with Jesus. I love this. Because Jesus wasn't really just thinking about Matthew. He was thinking about how to, work through Matthew to transform an entire community of people. And so Jesus and Matthew are hanging out with all of these sinners. And what we have to look at in this is, if we really, looking at our own hearts, we're in this crowd. If we know the thoughts and intents of our hearts as well as God does, we are at this party hanging out too. And so Levi, who becomes Matthew, starts bringing his friends in. He starts inviting the people around him. And my question for you is, who are the people around you? Who are the people in your networks, in your spheres of influence, that you can introduce to Jesus? The people that you think would never, ever have a chance with God on their own. I have a friend uh, now, uh, at one time, uh, we were enemies. Does anyone here, would anyone in here say, like, I have an enemy? There's someone who's actually an enemy. At one time in my life, I had an enemy. There was a guy, I won't name his name, uh, but there was a period in my life when I was in high school, I played football, and there was a guy on my football team, he was a year ahead of me. Uh, he really loved to endure or to engage in this thing called hazing with me and some other guys. And so this guy and I became enemies. He was just, he was just cruel, and he was... Uh, ruthless on our football team, and I developed a bitterness and a hatred towards this guy, truly. And he graduated and went on, and we went our ways, you know, and I, had, I hadn't heard or talked to him. I had no desire in talking to him ever again. And a few years later, when I was in college, I worked at a summer camp. And while I was there, there was a, another girl that was working at the summer camp with me, and we were talking one day, and I, and I said, yeah, I'm from this, this small town in Colorado. And she said, oh, do you know this guy, David? Uh, yeah, I know David. And I don't ever want to hear his name again. He's my enemy. Well, she said, whoa, whoa, whoa. 
I don't think we're talking about the same person. I said, no, this David? Da, da, da. She said, yeah. She said, but that's not the David I know. She tells me the story of David who received Christ, truly, and had joined their college ministry and became a worship leader and a Bible study leader and started investing his life into the lives of other men. Instead of tormenting and torturing other men, he's helping transform the lives of other men. And I thought, if God can do this with David, he can do this with anybody. <laughs> Who are the people in your life that may not be that extreme, but you think, oh, God, I just would love, my heart longs for them to know you and not just know about you. And so we see from Matthew that he has a legacy that he's leaving quite a bit different than what we saw at the beginning. He becomes the writer of one of our gospels. He's one of the 12 apostles. He forever changes the world. Not because of anything of his own doing, but because of God working powerfully in and through him. This man is no longer Levi the tax collector. This is Matthew the disciple maker. And one of Levi's, I'm sorry, Matthew's greatest words to us in his gospel is in Matthew 28. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, and this may be a familiar passage with a lot of us. Right, so in all of the, the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there's some iteration of this great commission that Jesus gives. But in the gospel of Matthew, it is very distinct and very unique and very pointed and clear compared to the other ones, where Matthew has embraced something that the others haven't. And God in his sovereignty, speaking through this man, gives us this beautiful great commission that is for all believers. And this is Matthew's legacy in Matthew 28. Read this with me. And Jesus came, after he had been crucified, died, and was resurrected, he came to the disciples. And he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So go, therefore go, as you're going, wherever you're going, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And Matthew's life is now driven and dictated by these three truths in here. That Jesus is the Lord of our heaven and earth. He's not the Lord. It's not his world. It's not his kingdom anymore. It's not about him. Jesus is the Lord. He has authority over heaven and earth, over all of his finances, over all of his time, over all of the people in his life, over what he does and how he thinks. Jesus is Lord over this. And because of that, he's commanding us to join him in making disciples, in helping others know this God, know Jesus, know the giver of life and the transformer of life. He's giving us this mission to join him. And this third truth is that Jesus promises to be with us. He tells these disciples, he said, I, I will be with you. I am with you always to the end of the age. That is true for us. Jesus is not an absent God. He's not a distant God. He's not a neglecting God. He is with us, present, and always will be. 
So this legacy that Matthew leaves is a life transformed and a life renewed and a life redeemed. And we are going to wrap up with six lessons. We're not going to go through them exhaustively. But there are six lessons from Matthew's story that we're going to summarize from all of this. The first lesson is this. Jesus doesn't just want us to know about him. He wants us to know him personally, deeply, and intimately. And friends, if you are in here and you don't know him, don't leave here today until you do. Would you pursue knowing him, this God who is loving and good and gracious and kind? Personally, deeply, will you pursue, will you pursue knowing Jesus like this? The second lesson is, Jesus doesn't just want us to know about him. He wants us to repent and follow him. We go back to this Luke passage. When the Pharisees and the religious leaders come to this party, I don't know what they were doing. They're like the wedding crashers all of a sudden, right? So they show up at this party, and it's kind of like, well, who are, what are you, why are you here? We didn't invite you. You're not one of the sinners. And Jesus says, oh, just wait. But these Pharisees and the religious leaders show up. And instead of coming to Jesus and saying, wait a minute, why are you doing this? They go to the disciples on the side, who maybe are a little more safe for them. And they say, why are you throwing a party and hanging out with these sinners and these tax collectors? Why are you doing this? This is wrong. This is bad. We can't be doing this. And Jesus, hearing it, he goes to him and he says, you have missed this. Because it is not those who are healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have come not to call the righteous, which is a direct slam to them, because they prided themselves on being self-righteous. They had it all together. He says, it's not the righteous who I have come to call, but sinners I have come to call to repentance. You know, and I think in my own life, I think about this, it, it is so easy for me to put on my jacket Sunday morning and try to come up and look sharp and have this facade and to say like, hey, everything's good. All is good. Look at how righteous I am. But really behind the scenes, maybe that's not what's going on. And we, we have to take an examination at the heart because that's what God does. Are we labeling, labeling ourselves as self-righteous or sinners? Will you repent and follow Jesus? Not just turning away from the things in your life you know you shouldn't be doing. That's just moralism. But will you turn to God? Matthew left his world behind because he knew it was destructive. And he turned to God and he embraced an abundance. He wants us to re repent and follow him. The third lesson is Jesus doesn't just want us to know about him. He wants us to be transformed, renewed, redeemed, and reconciled with God through him. There's a lot of R's in this. We're not going to unpack all of that. But the big idea is this. When Jesus enters our life, and we give our life to him, and we follow him as, Lord, as he is Lord and Savior, he's not just about taking this old used car of a life and polishing it up so it looks good. You know, and maybe, maybe tweaking it a little bit so it runs okay. No, Jesus comes in and he dismantles it. And he takes it apart, and he takes the motor apart. He takes the body apart, and, he, and then he reconstructs it into something new. Jesus isn't just in the business of changing us. He transforms forms us, and renews us. Will you allow Jesus to transform and renew you? The fourth lesson, Jesus doesn't just want us to know about him. 
He wants us to invite and introduce our friends to know him. Like Matthew did, bringing our friends. The question for you is, who around you can you invite to meet Jesus? Who around you can you draw in and introduce to the Savior of the world? The fifth lesson is this. Jesus doesn't just want us to know about him, Christians. Jesus wants us to know that only the sick and the sinners can come to him. And as Christians, tragically and ironically, we can do a really good job at hindering sick and sinful people from coming to him. May we be people who open the door and who embrace those who are hurting. May we open the door and we see those people in our lives or around us who need him because they are the ones who can come to him. And the sixth lesson is this. Jesus doesn't just want us to know about him. He wants us to make disciple makers with him. He wants us to carry on this legacy. We get to join him in. We get to not just introduce people to Jesus, but we get to help them walk with him and have relationship with him in such a way that it multiplies and it spreads and it reproduces for generations to come. Will you become a disciple who makes disciples? So we have the tale of these two men, Levi the sinner and Matthew the saint. Levi was spiritually sick, but through Jesus, he became spiritually healed. Levi the sinner was self-centered, but through Jesus, he became Christ-centered. Levi was power-driven. Matthew was gospel-driven. Levi was a liar and a deceiver, but Matthew was honest and a truth proclaimer. Levi was an enemy. Matthew was a friend. Levi was greedy. Matthew was generous. Levi was rejected. Matthew was redeemed. Levi was a servant of the state, but through Jesus, Matthew became a servant of the Savior. Levi was a moneymaker. Matthew was a disciple maker. Levi was a tax collector. Matthew was a people collector. Levi was empty and hopeless. Matthew was fulfilled and redeemed. So like Matthew, may we become God's transformed, redeemed, and empowered disciple makers by his grace and for his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have called us into a joyful, abundant life. You have called us into a good life, a life flowing with your generosity. You've called us as sinners to embrace you as a Savior. And Father, I pray, I pray that if there's anyone in here today who, who hasn't embraced this, God, that you would move in their hearts and their minds to embrace this. And those of us who know this, who know you and are walking with you, God, would you work in our hearts and our minds to know you all the more deeply and abide in you and dwell and remain in you so that through us, God, you may transform the world around us. Heavenly Father, may you empower us like Matthew and redeem us like Matthew and renew us like Matthew to be disciples, followers, who live out of love and generosity and kindness and graciousness to the people around us. Because you, God, 
are worthy of it all. And it's you we follow. And Father, we give you thanks for your work. In Jesus' name, amen.